0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Washington Post, this is Colby.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Tuesday, August 11th. Today, do more mail-in ballots mean more problems? Trump's lost pandemic summer. And Beijing cracks down in Hong Kong.
1: unprecedented number of Americans are going to be able to vote by mail for the general election in November. According to our tracker at the Washington Post, it's at least 76% of American voters, which is nearly 180 million people. We've never seen numbers like this before in terms of people who can vote by mail or vote absentee. It's really been a huge shift because of the pandemic. My name is Elise Viebeck and I'm a political enterprise and investigations reporter.
0: There've also been some snags when it comes to some states voting by mail, right? Like, can you give us a
1: sense of what we've seen in state primaries? Sure. So since the advent of the pandemic, every state has conducted at least one primary day, and that's given them a chance to test their systems before November. But in some states, it hasn't been an easy transition to more absentee voting. For example, uh, last week, Michigan held a primary, and there were a lot of voters who told our reporters Maybe they submitted an application with weeks left before the primary, but with only days or even hours left before the voting began, they didn't have their ballot. So what that suggests is first that election administrators around the country are facing unprecedented challenges right now. Running elections, even in normal times, is really hard. Any election official will tell you that. Trying to make sure that the vote is protected and secure is a really complicated process. So for election officials who are used to running in-person voting, figuring out this whole complicated set of steps to get absentee ballots printed, distributed to voters, processed, counted, those are all very difficult technical matters. They're also expensive and labor intensive absentee ballots are specially printed to go through the mail. They're usually on special paper. They have special ballot instructions. They're often a bit different from what voters might encounter if they go to cast ballots in person. That's another reason why it can take a long time for results to be tabulated in an all-mail election, because it really does take a bit of effort for election officials and their teams to open the envelopes, go through all the paper, and make sure that they're sorted properly.
0: We've also seen some mail-in ballots getting thrown out and states that are requiring people to go and vote in person still, right?
1: That's right. So in some states, they have not loosened the rules for voting by mail in response to the pandemic for November. So in those cases, there are going to be some American voters who are able to cast absentee ballots because they qualify under a particular state law that requires them to have an excuse. But in those cases, there are going to be voters who end up going to the polls and they can probably expect to see a lot of PPE there, poll workers socially distancing, lots of hand sanitizer and other sanitizing equipment. So it's true that election officials are ramping up special measures in those states to protect voters. But you mentioned the issue of rejected ballots. It is a really big problem, especially as we head into November. The rules for absentee voting vary by state. And it's really easy to disqualify your own ballot without even realizing it through a small error, like forgetting to sign your name on a particular line, or even a small tear in your ballot or the ballot envelope could disqualify it. And so there are a lot of civic education groups right now who are intent on educating millions of Americans over the next two and a half months to make sure they know what to do to ensure their ballot gets there on time and is counted. And when it comes to delays with actual results, what's going on there? Americans should definitely expect to wait several days, even potentially weeks, to find out the results of elections in November, including the presidential election. This is what we're hearing from election officials and experts around the country who note that the absentee balloting process takes a long time. Those ballots have to arrive back with election officials, either in the days following the election or on election day, depending on the state. Then they need to be unpacked, processed, validated, and then counted or not counted based on whether the election official finds the ballot to be valid. And that takes a long time, especially in jurisdictions that aren't used to running vote by mail elections and may not have the equipment or the personnel or the expertise that it would take to do it efficiently. So the big message to American voters is delayed results in November are not necessarily a sign of something going wrong. Experts and election officials would say, in fact, it's probably a sign of things going right.
0: It also seems like getting your ballot in the first place is a challenge and involves a lot of delays. Why is it so hard to get people their ballots in the first place?
1: It's a really labor-intensive process, running a vote-by-mail election. The vote-by-mail process involves, in many states, voters requesting a ballot, which means that they get an application, uh, they send it back in, the application is processed, then the election administrator, if the application goes through, they send the ballot. But we also know that there have been some delays in the Postal Service recently, and some Michigan voters we spoke to for last week's primary said they thought it was some of the policy changes that have taken place within the Postal Service that led to their ballots being delayed. Are there any fixes for these problems? Election officials would say that they need money from the federal government to help stand up these systems ahead of the general election. Uh, Democrats on Capitol Hill have proposed billions of dollars in aid for local election offices to help them, again, purchase that equipment, hire more staff get more training, essentially professionalize these systems before November to make them as foolproof and robust as possible. However, given the log jam on Capitol Hill right now, it seems very unlikely that there will be that much money provided to election officials before November, if
0: any. Let's talk about President Trump and his constant attacks on voting by mail. What are some of the things that he's said and done?
1: So since the end of March, when it became clear that there was going to be a large migration toward voting by mail this year, President Trump has, on an almost daily basis, attacked the system of voting by mail.
2: We don't want them to do mail-in ballots because it's going to lead to total election fraud. Democrats are also trying to rig the election by sending out tens of millions of mail-in ballots. Postmen are in big trouble now. You read where city councils are in big trouble now. Voter fraud all
1: over the, the ballots. So- he claims that it leads to widespread election fraud, which it's important to note, our reporting shows that there is no evidence that this system leads to widespread fraud.
2: This is a thing that will be a disaster like never before. So uh, we'll see what the court has to say about it.
1: The two political parties are going at it in the courts over the issue of vote by mail. There's tremendous litigation on that right now. President Trump's side, the Republicans, have been active in those fights, in bringing lawsuits and in fighting Democrats who are trying to expand access to vote-by-mail in battleground states. For example, our reporting recently looked at a lawsuit uh, brought by Republicans in Pennsylvania over the issue of ballot drop boxes, which listeners might not be familiar with, but they're basically drop boxes almost like you would see at a library for returned books, uh, but they're for ballots. And in Pennsylvania, the Republicans have made the case that they should not have been rolled out the way they have. So that's just one example of the Republicans taking the fight to Democrats over voting by mail through the courts. Have you seen this reflected in how people are actually casting their ballots? I think Republican officials have been concerned, in fact, that President Trump's attacks on absentee voting or voting by mail will turn off their base from using the system that will help them vote if there's a resurgence in the coronavirus in November.
2: Florida's done a great job and we have total confidence that if you mail in your ballot in Florida, it's going to matter.
1: So, in fact, we've seen a bit of a scaling back in recent days from President Trump and from groups like the Republican National Committee in how they frame this issue.
2: Florida's got a great Republican governor, and it had a great Republican governor. It's got Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, two great governors. And over a long period of time, they've been able to get the absentee ballots done extremely professionally. Florida's different from other states.
0: What are some of the issues we should be looking out for when it comes to voting by mail in the primaries and in the general election in November?
1: I think the most important thing for listeners if they plan to vote absentee or by mail is to study the instructions on their ballot. It sounds really technical, but studies have shown that it's really easy to make a mistake that would lead to your ballot not being counted and your vote not being counted. And so based on your state, it's important to familiarize yourself with the process for getting an absentee ballot. Certainly, if you can qualify for one because of the pandemic, that's important to know how to get one. And then once you get it, following the instructions to the letter as best you can in order to make sure that that vote gets to where it needs to go.
0: Elise Wiebeck is a political reporter for The Post.
3: you know it's worth pointing out that the united states is really one of the only developed countries that has been struggling to manage this pandemic in this way every other country that had a surge of cases in the spring like we did they've gained control of the virus and and their numbers are are down considerably. That is not the case in the United States. I'm Philip Rucker, the White House bureau chief at the Washington Post. The president's leadership, or critics would say lack of leadership, his mismanagement of this pandemic has had deadly consequences.
2: It'll go away at some point, it'll go away. Uh, It may flare up and it may not flare up. We'll have to see what happens. But if it does flare up, we're gonna put out the fire it's dying out it goes away it's going to fade away you know i said it's going to disappear i'll say it again but does that it's dis- going to disappear does that discredit and i'll you? be right my view is the school should open this thing's going away it will go away like things go away
3: the lack of a consistent message about what every american should be doing to protect against the virus, wearing a mask, social distancing, avoiding mass gatherings. Those messages have been rather muddied by this president and and inconsistent. We've also seen the president delivering a lot of false hope and unfounded claims about science. For a while there, he was pitching hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug.
2: The hydroxychloroquine uh, coupled with the zinc and perhaps the zithromycin but many doctors think it's extremely good and some people don't. Some people I think it's become very political.
3: As some sort of cure-all for the coronavirus we've heard the president talk about a vaccine being right around the corner.
2: We're balancing speed and safety and we're on pace to have a vaccine available this year maybe far in advance of the end of the year and we're mass-producing the most promising candidates in advance so that we're ready immediately upon approval. We have our military lined up. It's logistics. It's all about logistics.
3: When the reality is that a vaccine is very difficult to develop and then needs to be tested and approved by the Food and Drug Administration, you know, in talking to experts and talking to people in the government, they feel like this president has truly botched the moment and has mismanaged this crisis from the get-go for a whole combination of factors.
2: Nobody has anything like that. Nobody. And uh, I think we're just doing very well.
0: As all of those things loom, whether it's misinformation or mixed messaging or the extreme politicization of coronavirus, what are White House staffers saying about it all and, and how Trump is handling the coronavirus?
3: You know, many of the president's top aides are are quite defensive of his handling of the virus and they say it wasn't something he created. It it came from China. There's been a very deliberate effort, by the way, uh, in the White House to try to pin blame uh, on the virus on China to make voters, make people in this country believe that, that the president was effectively dealt a bad hand and is doing the best he can with it. That said, when when you talk to some of the president's advisors and and his allies outside the government in private, they acknowledge that the president has been not a good leader on this issue. He's been inconsistent. He's been very political and personal. He has not shown the sort of empathy that we're used to seeing from leaders in moments of national crisis. And he's not been focused and committed to trying to execute a disciplined plan that could help the response. Another factor that's been hurting the government's effort to respond to the virus is the uh, belief inside the White House that some of the science is not factual. That's a point of view held by the Chief of Staff in the White House, Mark Meadows, a former congressman from North Carolina, he has been skeptical of the science. He's been skeptical, in particular, of the two physicians who are leading the anti-pandemic effort, Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. He questions their expertise in closed door meetings. He even uh, says in meetings that he doesn't believe that that masks actually help contain the spread of the virus, even though there's consensus in the scientific community is that covering people's faces is essential.
0: Are there aides in the White House that are pushing back against him or against? His take on things?
3: Well, certainly some of the public health officials uh, push back to the degree they're able. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been very adamant that he sticks to the facts that when a certain drug in the doctor's estimation is not good for treating the coronavirus, he will uh, make that argument in private and in public. And we've seen Dr. Fauci in his media interviews push back on things that the president has said not in not in direct opposition to the president but certainly based on the substance and based on the facts uh, he is not one to recreate them based on the president's desires but the prevailing Uh, effort inside the White House has been to try to present information to the president that fits his worldview and that fits what he wants to see. Uh, One person described it to us in our reporting as a Potemkin village, bringing him charts, bringing him data that are, are constructed in a way to back up his claims that the response in the U.S. has been extraordinarily good and has been even historic in defeating the virus.
0: We know under different circumstances or when it comes to politics, how the president responds to people pushing back or people disagreeing with him. What happens when people disagree with him when it comes to coronavirus?
3: Well, when people disagree with Trump when it comes to coronavirus, they risk the president's wrath. And that's what happened with Dr. Burks a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Deborah Burks was on one of the Sunday television shows, and she said...
4: We are in a new phase, and that's why I really wanted to make it clear to the American people. It's why we started putting out governor reports directly to the health officials and the governors in every single state.
3: And that the spread of COVID-19 was extraordinarily widespread, involving not only urban areas, but rural areas across the country. She was just giving her professional medical assessment based on the data that she had been reviewing. But it was in conflict with the president's claims that the virus was receding. And the president did not like uh, that his own White House coronavirus coordinator, uh, Dr. Burks, was saying this on television. And, and Trump fumed about it in private to his aides. And then he later took to Twitter uh, to say that Dr. Burks had been pathetic and was somehow co-opted into to delivering that assessment because of attacks from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi.
0: It also seems like the administration is treating how we deal with recovering our economy right now and dealing with the pandemic as two completely separate issues. Is there anyone who sees the connection between them or or that they're tied together and and not only that, but also extremely dependent on each other.
3: That's right. You know, the president has prioritized the economy, wanting to rejuvenate the economy, and he sees that as key to his reelection hopes in November. But he has not sort of fully acknowledged that the key to reopening the country, the key to getting the economy back on track, the key to getting schools opened as he so desires Uh, is to get the virus under control. You can't have people returning to work uh, in office buildings around the country if COVID is spreading at the rate it's been spreading. You can't have restaurants that are thriving with people dining indoors if COVID is spreading. You can't have schools in some of these communities safely reopen if COVID is spreading. So the key to everything that would help the president is just getting control of the virus. There seems to have been a very slow recognition of that. And it seems now that in early August... The administration has started to realize that they need to get control of the virus in order to improve the president's standing, and it's one of the reasons why you've seen a much more forceful public uh, messaging and positioning by the president with these more routine briefings about coronavirus, but they're very much interconnected.
0: Right. I was, I was going to mention that we've seen the president go back to doing briefings almost every day now, which we, we did see him do earlier in the pandemic and then stop because they were just controversial. And now we're seeing him bring those back and be more present and vocal when it comes to addressing the public himself. Why has the White House decided that's a good idea?
3: You know the president just wanted to uh get out there and he views himself as his own best communicator and spokesperson and you know he he did those daily briefings up until the point uh, when he suggested people inject bleach and household disinfectants as a cure for the virus, which was a, obviously uh, false in terms of the science, but a very troubling political moment for the president. And he no longer held those briefings. Now he's back at the rostrum uh, trying to answer some of the questions about the virus. The uh, calculation among his political advisors, according to our reporting, is that if the american people see the president every day up there at that podium answering questions and dealing with criticism of the virus that they will then conclude he's in charge he's showing leadership and so on Uh, that said he can oftentimes be his own worst enemy because he is not disciplined as a messenger he says things that are not true he can say things that can create all sorts of problems for himself uh, it, you know, it's worth pointing out that in these first couple of weeks that he has resumed the briefings, he's largely been pretty on message and he doesn't linger there for too long. He hasn't gotten into a lot of uh, really ugly spacks with reporters like he used to, but time will only tell. And, and I would assume we're going to see more of that in the weeks to come.
0: Phil Rucker is the Post's White House bureau chief. And now, one more thing.
4: On Monday, in Hong Kong, we saw the most prominent people arrested under the new national security law, which passed here right before July 1. My name is Shabani Matani, and I'm the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Washington Post. Jimmy Lai, who is an entrepreneur and a a media tycoon here, he founded the Apple Daily Newspaper, which is owned by its parent company, Nix Media. Jimmy Lai was arrested from his home, along with his two sons and other executives who work uh, at Nix Media. They have not fully spelled out the charges and and not fully detailed and on what grounds they arrested him but the charges that he is facing they carry a maximum of life imprisonment (laughs) on that same day on on monday the apple daily newsroom was was raided uh related to his case as well (inaudible) what we saw here in, in hong kong was unprecedented scenes of hundreds of police officers raiding and and, and storming into the Apple Daily newsroom, poring over books and and, and documents and papers. All of this was was live-streamed by Apple Daily journalists who were bravely standing there and sort of recording uh, what was happening to the newsroom, the the intimidation and, and, and the scare tactics being used against them. Since the new national security law has passed, uh, it has outlawed really broadly worded crimes like uh, subversion of state power, terrorism, succession, uh, as well as foreign collusion. So working with countries like, say, the U.S. to undermine the interests of, of China and, and Hong Kong. And Jimmy Lai, you know, was widely believed to be among the first targeted under this law, because of his role uh, as, as a media tycoon, Be- Beijing has long labelled him a traitor and, and a rabble rouser. <laughs> By the end of the night, there was even more news that another prominent activist, Agnes Chow, she had been arrested too, uh, in relation to this case. So, you know, it was it was a sweeping operation. It lasted over 12 hours, and you know, it, it spooked a lot of people in Hong Kong. And I think that the idea, you know, that that Beijing would be restrained in using this new national security law, kind of went out the window yesterday with 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 this action. <laughs> The dramatic scenes here on Monday come just after.
2: Well, good afternoon, everyone.
4: The U.S. Uh, afternoon, sanctioned afternoon. 11 officials in in Hong Kong um, and, and Chinese officials who have jurisdiction over Hong Kong, including Carrie Lam, the chief executive.
1: I want to start as I often do with a few items on Communist China. Since I was last year, the world has witnessed more examples of CCP efforts to coerce and control its citizens.
4: This was a hugely significant move from the U.S. and I think something that would have been unthinkable even even just a year ago.
1: I urge U.S. citizens to exercise increased caution while traveling to or in any place in China
4: it's a very significant move and, and sort of underscored that the us no longer sees hong kong as an autonomous place it no longer sees hong kong's decision makers as their own their own entities but sees them as completely subservient to beijing and beijing's will the national security law here when it passed there was a lot of you know, let's wait and see, let's see how bad this is going to be. Let's see whether the law is just going to be here as a deterrent rather than, you know, as something that's going to be used actively to target activists, to crack down on them, to create a a chilling effect over the media, over the press. And we got our answer, right? We got our answer on Monday that this was absolutely a tool that they're going to use to go after people who are perceived as as enemies or, or, or dissidents.
0: Shibani Matani covers Hong Kong for the post. That's it for post reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.